This morning's reading is take this morning's reading is taken from Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 15. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, "Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden?" And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was the delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You may be seated. want to uh, make sure we're clear this morning as to what Advent is, why we do Advent. I want to take just a minute to do that. Advent is not mandated anywhere in the scripture. Um, Advent is not detailed about how we should observe it, and that's what Lauren was saying. You know, We're not here to debate that. What, the reason we celebrate Advent is not because we keep the church calendar and not because we're Roman Catholic or anything like that. It is just to build anticipation in this season as we remember the first coming of Jesus and we look forward to the second coming of Jesus. I've got three Sundays that I'll be speaking between now and the fourth Sunday of Advent. And like you heard, Alan will be speaking the other one. I'm going to take those three Sundays and and we're going to look at three things. He will come. 
He came and he'll come again. So that's going to be the topics of my three Advent Sundays. Uh, So we've got he came today. I'm sorry, he will come today. He came next week, Lord willing. And then the fourth Sunday of Advent will be he will come again. So this is just about reminding ourselves of the historical truths of what the Bible teaches us about God's presence with us. And we sang it this morning, Emmanuel, God with us, God with us, pleased to dwell. And as Will read that passage there in Genesis 3 this morning, I want to reiterate something that I think is incredibly important. I believe that was an actual historical event. I believe that that actual historical event of the fall of the first man and woman who were literally created by God happened about 6,000 years ago or so, give or take, not a few million years. And since that's true, since that actually happened, we've got to deal with it. We've got to come to grips with it. I don't know where you are this morning as far as your perception of spiritual things. But if your spiritual things don't affect your natural things, your spiritual things are no good. And as we anticipate the literal return of Christ in a physical body to the earth to reign and rule forever, here at Advent, I want us to remind ourselves these are the truths, the actual physical truths that we've all got to deal with. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're like, this is hogwash, I don't believe it. And that's where you stand. Hopefully, as you hear the historical events that we're going to talk about today, mostly, well, from the Old Testament. We're going to do an Old Testament survey this morning. And what we're going to look for is the promise of the coming of the Messiah. And in an odd intro, I want to start with a song from the owner of the greatest Christmas album of all time. His name is Doug Stone. And there's no argument to be had here, okay? It's just plain truth. Doug Stone has the greatest, most perfect Christmas album of all time. It's called The First Christmas. It came out in 1992. Just so you know, if you want to find it, and you'll thank me later, when you're singing Santa's Flying a 747 tonight, you're going to be happy that I pointed you in that direction. But anyway, we're not going to actually look at his Christmas album this morning. We're going to look at some good old 90s country. And a non-Yuletide hit titled, I Thought It Was You. In this song, the lyrics tell of a guy who keeps seeing people whom he thinks is his ex-girlfriend. Or maybe it's his ex-wife. I don't know. Don't get that in depth. And then the chorus bemoans the ex-ness of that ex-girlfriend. Here's some lyrics. First, First verse and chorus. I called your name out loud to a stranger yesterday. When she turned around, I said, I'm sorry. And just walked away. From a distance, she had that look, and for a second or two, I thought it was you. Man, that's that's good, y'all. And then here's the chorus. Uh, I thought it was you. I took a moment to catch my breath, tried to brace myself. Still don't have a clue on how to leave your memory behind after all this time. I hear there's one special love in each life, and I must look like a fool. I thought it was you. Let's just take a second and collect ourselves after that. Okay. All right. 
That's true. We could just close. That's, that's all we needed today, right? Have you ever seen somebody and thought it was somebody else? And you're like, hey! And they're like... And you're like, oh, I thought you were somebody else. I worked at the movie theater starting when I was 17. And there was a teenage guy that always came every weekend. And he was a fixture. And one, one night he was standing at the entrance of the theater waiting on somebody to come in. And he saw somebody in a Superman shirt, the big S, okay? And he looked at him and he said, hey, stupid man. And the guy said, what'd you call me? He said, stupid man, how you been doing, man? Well, it wasn't who he thought it was. And so this guy's getting all mad because at the theater on Saturday night, everybody wants to fight anyway, right? So stupid man took offense at that. And the guy's like, man, I'm sorry. I thought you was somebody else. And he was very apologetic. We avoided it for like, everybody calm down, stupid man. Go to your movie. We're all right, right? But you feel stupid, right? You feel stupid. I thought you were somebody else and you weren't. And you're like, oh, I'm the, I feel like a fool. Well, we're going to take a walk through the Old Testament this morning here on the first Sunday of Advent. Watching the world that is watching for God's promised deliverer, the coming Messiah. And this journey is filled with, I thought it was you, moments. Starting all the way back in Genesis where we're going to begin. Genesis 1 and 2, we have the narrative of the creation. With God taking six literal days to create the heavens and the earth and all that fills them. And on day six, God forms a man from the dust of the ground and then fashions a woman from a rib out of that man. He joins them together and calls them to reign and rule over all of his creation in his very image. Well, this man and woman in a perfect environment sin, and when they sin, they bring all of sin's consequences into the cosmos. And those consequences are spelled out to the serpent, the woman, and the man in very specific ways. And what Will read this morning was the first part of the curse upon the serpent. And that's what we're going to focus on as we look again at Genesis 3.15. Among the curses given to the serpent for his part in that original sin. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity. So this is God speaking to the serpent who is the devil. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, her offspring, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay? Now, this is very significant. This verse has been called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. It's God's first indication that man would need delivered. That man would need salvation from this sin that they had just partaken in and that sin that would lead to disastrous consequences for them and everybody after them, including us. But here's the thing, guys. God was not taken by surprise. He didn't look down when this happened and said, Oh no, what are they doing? Okay? He, God, had made provision for this catastrophic choice of Adam and Eve. And here, in Genesis 3.15, he tells of a time when one would come, born of a woman, who would bruise the head of the serpent, who would bruise the head of the devil. And that bruiser would be an offspring of the woman who had participated in this original sin. And we can't fathom the horror that occurred to Adam and Eve when they realized, oh no, we've done this. Because they were, God said, you will die if you eat from this tree. And they realized, I'm not dead, but I'm in sin now. And I'm separated from God. 
which is the state of everybody that's born into the world because of what they did. And so Adam and Eve would begin to look for this one who was coming, who would crush this snake and put an end to their exile from God in his presence because God drove them out of the garden. He said, you can't be here anymore. You can't walk with me openly, freely, because now you know of sin and you have sin and you have sinned, so you're in exile now. So they start looking for this deliverer, this promised one who would crush the snake and bring them back to God. And I really believe they were looking for that deliverer in their time. And so Genesis 4.1, John, I don't have my clicker if you can work my slides there. So in 4.1 we read this, Adam knew Eve his wife and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, my thought is, did they think this is him? This is our deliverer. Was this first birth the answer to this prophecy? Was this the snake bruiser? Was Cain the deliverer, the one who would restore God and man into right relationship with each other? Maybe they even talked to Cain and then his brother Abel telling them of the promise of an end to this fallen state. Maybe they even discussed the possibility that Cain or maybe even Abel, I thought it was you. Maybe somehow, someway, you, son, will deliver us and things will be like they were before you came along in the beginning in the garden when we walked and talked with God freely and openly. Well, just a few verses later in Genesis 4, we learn very quickly that neither Cain nor Abel are to bruise the serpent's head. Instead, literally, Cain crushes the head of his brother. After God had regard for Abel's offering to God, but did not have regard for Cain's, Cain, in jealous anger, kills his brother Abel. Genesis 4.8 says, Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Tragic to say the least, and probably dream-shattering in relation to this promised deliverer. Kevin DeYoung, in this great children's book, The Biggest Story, tells this story as well, and he calls him the snake crusher. I like that. The biggest story, how the snake crusher brings us back to the garden. And I owe a big deal of this thought pattern to this book and also to uh, Andrew Peterson's Behold the Lamb of God because you can't tell the story of the deliverer without knowing a need for a deliverer, which is what we're doing this morning. So back to fallen humanity. Adam and Eve see their son killed by their son and any dreams they had of either of them being the deliverer quickly fade. And the pace of sin quickens with the world seemingly not moving toward deliverance but away from it. And not too many generations later, we see in Genesis 6, we're a couple chapters over, Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so God sends not a deliverer, but a deluge. God sends a worldwide flood to wipe sinful man off the face of the earth. But in grace and mercy, God preserves humankind through Noah, a literal man in literal history, Noah and his family. Noah, his wife, his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives are preserved alive along with pairs of animals on a literal ark, which was a symbol of this coming deliverance. And I wonder if they wondered if any of them were this promised deliverer. Because it's just down to us now. Maybe Noah's the deliverer. Shem, Ham, Japheth. Maybe. Maybe. It's down to just us now. So maybe one of us is him. 
but it was not to be. And as they were delivered and began to repopulate the earth, rumors and stories were told of a coming deliverer, a coming deliverer, one who would make things, one who would come and make things right, one who would restore man to a peaceful relationship to this God who had just wiped out humanity with 40 days and nights of vengeful rain. And then one day, God himself stokes the flames of a deliverer of deliverer talk when he shows up and speaks to a man named Abram in the land of Ur. God tells this man to pack his things and go where God's telling him to go because God's going to make a great nation out of this old childless man. So is Abram the promised one? Is he the deliverer? Well, it's not to be. Rather, Abram, who, became, who becomes known as Abraham when God renames him, this Abraham receives a promise that God from, promise from God and it smacks of this promised one. As God's plan for Abraham unfolds, God promises that Abraham will have the land of Canaan as a perpetual possession for his descendants, that God will make a great nation out of him, and that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the seashore. But there's a problem. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, don't have any children. Sarah is barren and she's almost 90 years old. But God promises that Abraham and Sarah will have a son, a promised son, that comes from their physical union and Sarah's barren womb. Oh man, is this the one? The son of promise? God's direct intervention to bring this promised one into the world? Is this God's deliverer? Well, Isaac is born when Abraham's 100 and Sarah's 90. And after God calls Abraham to sacrifice him to God and then delivers Isaac from destruction, we see that Isaac is in fact not the promised deliverer. A promised son, but not the promised deliverer. But... God has started a process to form a nation out of literally nothing. Is it happening? Isaac and his wife Rebekah have twins, one of which is named Jacob. Well, God shows up to Jacob and renames him Israel. Oh, we've heard that before, right? And he says that he, Israel, will inherit the promises of God even though he was the younger of the two twins. Is this Jacob, now Israel, the promised one? Well, just a cursory reading of Israel's life shows that he was a swindler and a scoundrel. And he is indeed not the deliverer and restorer of God to man. But he has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And this nation is starting to take shape, it would seem. One of those sons is named Joseph. He's sold into slavery by his jealous brothers and ends up in Egypt where through an amazing turn of events is brought low and then exalted to the second in command in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, the mightiest man on the face of the earth at the time. Well, back in Canaan, Israel and his family find themselves in need of food during a vicious famine that's gripped the whole world, but they hear that there's food in Egypt where a wise leader has stored up food for just such a time. And when they go down to get food and then they go back again to get food, they find out that the one saving them, the one delivering them from this famine is their brother Joseph. And he's running Egypt basically, second to Pharaoh in name only. Maybe finally, this is our deliverer. Maybe God's going to make things right now. And so Israel and his whole family enter the proverbial ark of God's deliverance as they relocate to Egypt where they weather the famine and start to increase in numbers beyond their wildest imaginations. 
But there, in the very midst of their deliverance, they are enslaved by a future Pharaoh who knows nothing of Joseph, but instead sees these multitudinous Hebrews as a threat to his kingdom. And they become slaves there, and they're there for 400 years, which God had predicted to Abraham back in his covenant with him. So they become slaves there, and for generations they serve the whims and the wishes of Pharaoh and his kingdom. And what do you think that they cry out for? Exodus 2, 23-25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. What? What? God knows everything. So what's that mean? Now get this scene. Israel has flourished in Egypt, but now they're slaves. And what are they calling out for? A deliverer. And yes, this feels different than calling out for a deliverer from sin and its consequences, like we saw in early Genesis. But God has his people calling out to him for deliverance. And their groaning reaches God. And he calls to mind his covenant with Abraham and his descendants. And God sees them. And the ESV says God knew. That word knew is yada in the Hebrew yada, 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 right? And and it can mean to know in a carnal way or in a mental way. It can mean to understand. It can even mean to save. So God sees his people. He understands their plight and is in the process of saving them, delivering them, even at that moment. So God appears to a guy named Moses who had been saved from Egyptian infant side and was raised in Pharaoh's court, but had fled to Midian after killing an Egyptian and hiding the body. And here in Midian, God speaks to Moses from a burning bush and tells him to go back to Egypt and deliver his people out of Egyptian slavery. So, aha! Here's this deliverer, finally! Well, no, this isn't that deliverer. But Moses does lead the Israelites out of Egypt and receives God's law for God's people during the 40-year trip that should have taken about 11 days. And God promises that the Israelites will come to and conquer the promised land of Canaan, the land that God had promised to Abraham and his descendants, who these people are. But that Moses will not see that land due to Moses' disobedience along the way. So there must be someone else who's going to deliver them. And so a young man named Joshua, or Yeshua in the Hebrew leads them into the promised land, and leads the conquest of the land. So is he the deliverer? Nope. He dies, and the land is ruled by judges, guys like Gideon, Samson, Samuel, but none of them really fit the deliverer image, so they do deliver them from time to time. And they show shades of God's promised vindication and salvation for his people. But then, in an attempt to be like the other nations, Israel rejects God as their king and calls out for a human king. And God gives them Saul, who has a checkered reign, which ended with his death, paving the way for a guy named David to be king over God's people. Andrew Peterson, in his musical Behold the Lamb of God, in the song So Long Moses, describes David this way. Hail, King David, shepherd from Bethlehem. He set the temple of God in mighty Jerusalem. He was a king on a throne, full of power, with a sword in his fist. Has there ever been? Has there ever been a king like this? Full of wisdom, full of strength. The hearts of the people are his. Hear, O Israel! Was ever there a king like this? 
And so if there were ever a person who would fit the deliverer title any better than Moses had, this David fit that description perfectly. Under David, Israel would honor God and set up the worship of God in the capital of Jerusalem. Mighty, warrior, conquering king, sweet psalmist of Israel, passionate worshiper. Is he perfect? No, not close to perfect. But this, this king, could this be it? We're here. We're in the land that God's promised. We're multiplying. We're flourishing. And we've got a king over us who has delivered us from foreign oppression. And he set up the worship of God and his palace here in Jerusalem. Is is this your promise, God? Well, God promises David that one of his descendants would sit up on the throne of God's kingdom. Listen to this. Forever. Forever. Okay, well then are we close then? Will David's son be that guy? Well, David dies and passes the kingdom on to his son Solomon, who surely increases the size of the nation to its greatest size, maybe close to the size that God had promised Abraham way back when, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Not quite all the way, but Solomon made Israel wealthy beyond anything they'd ever imagined. The people were at peace like never before. Silver was like rocks. They didn't count it of value. The temple and the king's palace are built and they are glorious. God shows up in glory literally at the dedication of this temple. Is this it, God? Have we been delivered? Is Solomon the one? Is he going to reign forever? Well, unfortunately, Solomon's heart is led astray by foreign women. And he has 700 wives and 300 concubines. And so he departs from the path of God's plan for his people. And when he dies, the nation of Israel divides in two. Rent apart into the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel and the two tribes of the southern kingdom of Judah. And things just get pretty crazy after that. It's an up and down, mostly down type of deal. The northern kingdom sets up idols in Samaria and says that people can worship their idols. While those in the southern kingdom say, hey, we've got the temple. Remember God's glory had rested on this temple back at Solomon's dedication. What was God doing? Where's this deliverer? Because things are fracturing now. We were right there. I thought it was you, David. I thought it was you, Solomon. And now I look like a fool. What about your promise, God, to have a descendant of David on the throne forever? What are you doing, God? What about the promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their descendants? What about the land? What about the deliverance? What about bruising the devil's head? Where is this deliverer? Where is this restoration that's supposed to happen? Well, from the time of the divided kingdom until the northern kingdom was taken away into captivity by the Assyrian Empire in 722 B.C., And then the southern kingdom is obliterated in 586 by the Babylonians. They tear the temple down, burn everything to the ground. And the southern kingdom is then taken into exile. All this time, God is sending prophets who are telling his people of a time that is coming when one, with a capital O, will come who will make all things right who will rule over all of God's people forever, who will defeat all of their enemies, who will defeat sin, death, and even the grave. Prophecy after prophecy, prediction after prediction, promise after promise. And let me just sample a few of them for you. The coming one would be born of a virgin. What? 
He would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. He would be a stone that would make men stumble. He would walk in Galilee of the Gentiles as a bright light in their darkness. He would heal blind, deaf, and mute people. He would shepherd his sheep. God's Spirit would rest upon him. He would be gentle. He would suffer. He would be despised and rejected by his own people. He would bear the sins of his people. He would not defend himself against abuse. He'll die with the wicked. He would be a righteous branch. He would declare good news to the brokenhearted, the captives, and the prisoners. He would establish a new covenant. He will be cut off. He will be called out of Egypt. He will come from Bethlehem. He will ride on a donkey. Elijah would come before him. He will be the son of righteousness that will rise on his people. It's been said, and we'll talk about this more in application, that there are over 400 direct prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament. God had been heralding his plan for 4,000 years of Old Testament history. But something terrible had happened. The people of God had forgotten that the original promise way back in the garden was that it would be the serpent whose head would be bruised by this coming one. Yeah, there were promises of land and descendants and a kingdom. All that's true. And those things will happen as well. But these people at this time, at the end of the Old Testament specifically, they're not focused on the original promise. They're not focused on the one promised during the curse upon the serpent Satan in the garden and that that promise was to that devil's ultimate demise. He had slithered in to try to undermine God's design and authority, but had really only set off a chain of events that had been planned in eternity past for the glory of God and the good of His people. And for those 4,000 years following, God was moving every piece, every part in precise perfection to reveal this one who would indeed bruise the serpent's head. But every fallen false Messiah, even the ones God used in his plan, only led the Israelites to despair a little more over time because they wanted a king on a throne to make them prosperous. They wanted God to do for them what they wanted. And everyone that fell, everyone that came and went, discouraged them and led them to despair a little more and a little more over time. No, it wasn't Cain or Noah or Abraham, or Isaac, or Jacob, or Joseph, or Moses, or Joshua, or the judges, or Saul, not even David or Solomon, or any of the kings or prophets that would follow them. But they had all spoken of him or foreshadowed him, maybe without even knowing it. Moses had said back in Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, a prophet like Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. God said that to Moses. David had rejoiced. In Psalm 16, 9 to 10, which ends up being a prophecy of the Messiah. I don't think he knew that. 
Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. He spoke for himself, but he spoke of so much more than he even knew. And then Isaiah had spoken these amazing words, not seeing their true fulfillment hundreds of years later after him. Isaiah 53, 3-12. Speaking of this coming deliverer, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand out of the anguish of his soul. He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You see, those who bruise snakes' heads aren't supposed to be bruised themselves, are they? Well, go back to that curse in the garden. Genesis 3.15 I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, the deliverer, the one coming, shall bruise your head, serpent, and you, serpent, shall bruise his heel. Everybody's looking for a glorious, victorious, give us everything we want kind of leader. That's the deliverer that we want. Our best life now, in the kingdom of our making, of our choice. But that was never God's plan. All the way back to the curse on the serpent. Oh, you'll bruise his heel, serpent, but he's going to bruise, he's going to crush your head. And so they missed him. We'll get to that next week. But God had been saying for 4,000 years, this is what it's going to look like. This is who he's going to be. And here's the last prophecy of the Old Testament. Last one listed in our Old Testament. Found in Malachi 4. It's the whole chapter, but it's only six verses. Settle down. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers evil will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes 
statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he, Elijah, will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. And then for 400 years, silence. No word from God. This is the last thing they heard from God for 400 years. And the promise was, I'm going to send Elijah before I send the one. So then what do the Jews start doing? They start looking for Elijah. They still save a place at their table at Passover today just in case he would show up. The ones that don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So the Old Testament, 4,000 years of God's prophecies and predictions of the Messiah stop. And there's silence from heaven for 400 years. A famine of hearing the word of the Lord. Until John shows up in the wilderness saying, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now listen. These things really happened. This is history. There's not a more reliable history book than the Bible. And this story that I just told that covers 4,000 years actually happened with actual people. And that tells of an actual one coming who will actually crush the serpent's head. But here today, near the end of this message, we find ourselves waiting for him. Now, we're not there. We're past all this. But today we're going to stop there. And the thought pattern is he will come. God has promised it. Now, that leads us to application. We've got three C's today. Confusion. Oh, I'm sorry. Conflict, confusion, and Christmas. Anytime Christmas is an application point, you got yourself a good message. Even if you had to force it in there, which I did, but anyway. Conflict, confusion, and Christmas. The first application point is conflict. The story of Advent, the story of this coming deliverer, is rooted in the conflict of the woman and her seed against the enemy of our souls. That's where all this got its start. A snake slithered into a garden, spoke to a woman, deceived her, and said, Eat this fruit. I don't think I'm supposed to. Did God really say you shouldn't? Mm. You know what? It does look okay. And you're telling me it's going to make me wise. You know what? It even tastes good. Crunch. Hey, hubby, here you go. Thanks, doll. Crunch. And sin enters the human race. And put us at odds with God from that point on. This morning, every human being who has ever lived since Adam and Eve has been born into conflict. And unfortunately, that conflict is with God. 
unredeemed, unsaved people are at conflict with God. And that's all of us in and of ourselves. We're all born into it. Every single one of us. Until God does something to make us right with Himself. Until He delivers us from the snake and the effects of sin. And out of grace calls us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And adopts us as sons and daughters and becomes our Father. Until that point we are at conflict with God. You were by nature children of wrath like the rest. And if that's where you're sitting here this morning, still in conflict with God, still unregenerate, still not born again, He will come again. And His judgment will fall upon those who have not been redeemed, who have not placed their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ who did come. We'll get to that in Christmas. But for those who have been born again, guess what? The conflict continues. But now, we've got three enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Are you Christian? Are you born again person engaged in that conflict? Are you fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil? Because you're in this war whether you realize it or not. And until the battle is ultimately won, we're to fight. We're to be soldiers. 1 Timothy 6.12 Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Let me ask you a question this morning, church. I want to ask you directly, one-on-one, which well, I can't do that, but let's, 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 you just think he's talking to me. Are you fighting the good fight of the faith? Or are you making provision for the flesh? Are you friends with the world? Are you kind of winking and nodding at the devil and saying, thanks, I'll, I'll still eat a little bit of the fruit. Engage in the conflict. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. I'll read this quickly. We won't talk about it much. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand! You hear that a little bit? Two or three, four times there? Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, praying for all men. Remember that? And Paul says, and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. I want to say one thing quickly about this passage. What is the posture that we are to take in this battle 
against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Stand. Stand. The battle's already been won. We need to only stand the ground that has already been taken by the deliverer who came and won the battle for us. Stand. It is technically a defensive posture because Jesus took the offensive, he stormed the beach, he won the day, and now we're just standing the ground that he's already won. Mm, That's good news. This battle is not me trying to win. This battle is fought in the strength of the one who's already won. And who will come back one day and make all things right. To claim what is rightfully his. So conflict. Second is confusion. I thought it was you. And I must look like a fool. You ever missed God's clear signals in your life? You ever missed what God's doing? 4,000 years. God's saying He's coming. This is what He's going to look like. And they missed Him. Because they wanted the wrong thing. And when we want the wrong thing and we pray to God and say, God, you told me to ask you and you do that thing that I want, it leads us to confusion. I called your name out loud to a stranger yesterday. When she turned around, I said, oh, I'm sorry. Just walked away. I just knew God was doing this. And then it fell apart. What are you doing? Who do you think you are? I was serving you. And they hurt me. I was seeking your will and got lost. I don't know what's going on anymore. You said you would come. You said you would help me. You said you would deliver me. And here I am. What are you doing? I'm confused. Give me a deliverer. Get me out of this situation. Don't do that. Deliver me. And God says, I I will. And I am. That it may not look like what you think it should look like. And he may not do what you want him to do. We want a king on a throne. Full of wisdom. Sword in his fist. God said, well, I'll give you that, but that's not him. That's not the one I'm talking about. God, answer my prayer. No, 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 not like that. That's not what I meant. And we live in this sense of anticipation, but it's an anticipation for what I want. Give me some relief, for goodness sake. Have you seen the history of the people of God in the Old Testament? Have you seen the history of the people of God from the New Covenant on? All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 
If they hated me, they will hate you. If I, your Savior, suffered, how much more are we going to have to suffer for his name's sake? And we call out and we go, what in the devil are you doing, God? And we're confused. And we join the chorus of the psalmist, Psalm 10.1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The Bible says. We echo the words of the psalmist in Psalm 22, which is also the words of our Savior. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Leading to confusion. Why would God do this to me? Why would God do this to us? Why wouldn't God just wipe all this away? Because if he was a good God, there would be no suffering in the world. Anybody ever heard that before? And I've heard recently, Christians have no answer for suffering in the world. The heck we don't. We know why there's suffering in the world because of the presence of sin. And we subjugated our right to reign and rule to a serpent who said, give it a shot. God didn't really mean all that stuff. And sin and death came in and that's why we have suffering. But you know what? There's coming a day when all that's going to be taken away too. But it's not right now. Now we suffer. Now we struggle. Now we groan as we stand against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we wait for the return of the one who we know has rightfully taken this land for himself. And he's coming. Now that's three weeks from now. Let's not go there yet. For now we struggle with confusion. Why do you stand far away? Why have you forsaken me? Why are you not answering me? Conflict, confusion. But finally, Christmas. Listen, sinner. Listen, saint. The deliverer did come. He he came. Jesus, God in the flesh was born of a virgin in Bethlehem and walked among men and headquartered in Galilee and healed the sick and freed people from demonic oppression. He suffered at the hands of godless men and died on a Roman cross to free His people from their sins once and for all. This is what the whole story had been about. He was the offspring of Eve and seed of Abraham and the descendant of David who would reign upon the throne over God's people forever. Now listen to this. You're like, I don't believe in all that Jesus stuff. Really? Here's a quote from, I couldn't find the person's name. It was gotquestions.org. I I can't commend them because I don't know. Okay, But listen to this. The story of Jesus saturates the meta-narrative of the Bible. 
And prophecies of his first advent, the first time that he came, are found throughout the Old Testament. Allusions, a allusions, to him also come up in microways as many people and events hint at the work that he would accomplish. One scholar, J. Barton Payne, has found as many as 574 verses in the Old Testament that somehow point to or describe or reference the coming Messiah. Alfred Edersheim found 456 Old Testament verses referring to the Messiah or his times. Conservatively, Jesus fulfilled at least 300 prophecies in his earthly ministry. That's history. Watch this. This is from a guy who I cut off the link, and I'm sorry. He's talking about the works of... Oh, here it is. I'm sorry. It was on glimpseofinfinity.com. Again, I don't know. I can't recommend that website necessarily, but listen to this. The Old Testament contains over 400 prophecies about the coming Messiah. Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled every one of them. Do you know what the odds of that happening are? Think about it. One single man fulfilling every prediction about the coming Messiah, the Savior of the world. A professor named Peter Stoner worked with 600 students to figure out what the probability would be of just eight of the over 400 prophecies being fulfilled in any one person who had lived up to that present time. And the odds of just eight of them being fulfilled in one person is one in one... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen... With 17 zeros after it. I don't know what that number is. It's big. The chances of one person fulfilling just eight of those 400 prophecies is 1 in 10 to the 16th power. That's the odds against it. Lee Strobel, an atheist turned Christian who wrote the book The Case for Christ, performed some calculations to try to figure out what this would look like in real life. Lee notes, now listen to this, I imagine the entire world being covered with white tile that was one and a half inches square and every bit of dry land on the planet with the bottom of just one tile painted red. Then I pictured a person being allowed to wander for a lifetime around all seven continents. He would be permitted to bend down only one time and pick up one piece of tile. What are the odds it would be the one tile whose reverse side was painted red? The odds would be the same as just eight of the Old Testament prophecies coming true in any one person throughout history. And one man came as God in the flesh and fulfilled all of those 400 plus prophecies in his birth, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven. And his name is Jesus. We're not playing fast and loose. We're not hoping... That this might possibly, maybe, be at least kind of true. We are dealing with the surest of the sure. The realest of the real. 
And that's what we celebrate at Advent. Is the first time that he came and fulfilled all those prophecies. And listen to me, if Christmas happened, what we call Christmas, and it did, then the rest of that, those prophecies about his future coming, they're true too. And if those prophecies are true, it is him with which you will have to do on that last day. And ultimately, who you see him as, who you know him as, who he knows you as, is going to determine whether you spend eternity in heaven or in hell. Literally. All of history revolves around the person of Jesus Christ. You're like, not my history. Yeah, yours too. You're like, I struggle with it. So do I. So do all of us. I've never seen him. And I won't until he comes back, maybe today. My chart, I can consult my chart and I'll let y'all know if it's today or not. From the seed of the woman to the son of righteousness, God was telling of and promising that one who would come and who would do God's will and save God's people from their sins. And the message is still true today. And the call to come is still here today. And you're like, oh, I already did that. Good, praise God. Keep coming and keep coming and keep getting to know this one who was sent. Galatians 4, 4 to 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And that's the offer of Christmas. That's the promise of Advent. Amen. Where do you stand today with this promised Messiah, this promised deliverer? Will you place your faith in his finished work? Or will you look like a fool thinking it was somebody else, thinking it was yourself or that guy or that girl? that money place your faith in him he will not let you down let's pray father we thank you that you have done all things perfectly you have done all things well and for four thousand years you proclaimed he's coming he's coming he's coming and now for two thousand years since then you have proclaimed he came and today you proclaim again he's coming again God, help us to place our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ for our salvation. And as we stand against the devil, help us to stand the ground that he has won as he crushed his head. Thank you for the snake crusher. Thank you for the one who bruised the head of the serpent. May we put our faith in him. ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now. Now, (laughs) may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed, but stay and eat with us if you can.